Hi there, everybody. My name is Andrew Rice, and welcome once again to the Golf Fanatics podcast. This is episode two. Why are we doing this? What is our objective? We want to get some great information to the average everyday golfer who's looking to have a little bit more fun out on the golf course. And we are going to go out and find some of the best coaches, the best people in the golf business to share their stories, their information with you. This second episode is sponsored by golffanatics.com. Hi, everybody. I'm Andrew Rice. We created Golf Fanatics so that we could share complex information in simple, understandable, uncluttered language that you can take to the golf course. And today, my guest, a very, very special friend, just a legendary teacher, someone I look up to a tremendous amount, uh, Chuck Cook, based in Austin, Texas. And the thing that I, I I love to look at, Chuck, and I was reading up a little bit on your on your bio and your history, as if I needed to know some more. I, I can always learn more. And one of the things that I that really caught my eye is here at Golf Fanatics, we're trying to bring together a faculty of just amazing golf minds. And we think we're really smart because we've got a golf fitness professional, we've got a psychologist, and we've got a biomechanist on our faculty. And I noticed that, and you've told me this story before, but in 1980, just a mere 40 years ago, when you were a young pup, uh, you had you started a golf school that had a golf fitness person that had a psychologist and had a biomechanist. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about that? You've always been, and that's really why I look up to you, Chuck. You're certainly an old school coach, and I, and and I don't mean anything negative at all in in saying that. But you are one of the few old school coaches that I look up to who have managed to stay current. And you're always looking to learn. You're always wanting to understand new technology. Tell me about that golf school in 1980. And how did you come up with some of those awesome ideas to start in that fashion? Well, I'm not really old school. I'm just old. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, no, we had, um, I was working for Golf Digest magazine at the time. We were doing golf schools all over the world. And they were hired uh, by this golf academy in Austin, Texas. Uh, that was the foremost designed academy at the time. It had three practice holes. It had bent grass, Bermuda grass, uh, chipping areas and putting areas. It had covered hitting. We had classrooms. We had offices. We had club story. We had the whole deal. So I wanted to build a program that had that lived up to, to the reputation of that. And so I, I was given free reign to do what I wanted. And so I decided, okay, well, we're just going to bring in experts in all of these different areas. And so we brought in Dick Coop was the first guy who was an educational psychologist at the University of North Carolina. And I had looked for books on, on golf psychology and Dick had this one book, the new golf mind he wrote with Gary Wyron. And uh, so I said, well, I'll call him up. And he came out and trained me and my staff on how to teach better and so forth. Gave us a questionnaire actually that we had to fill out for every lesson. And so it really changed our habits. It was good. And then the next guy was a guy by the name of Ralph Mann. And Ralph uh, was a biomechanist, but not in golf. And so he was a biomechanist for track and field. And he was uh, a silver medalist in the Olympics in the hurdles. And so he developed his, he was not the fastest guy, but he was the fast, had the best form over the hurdles by studying biomechanics of hurdling. And so we got him to, 
get into golf and he did that and ended up, we started another academy at Grand Cypress and he ended up uh, going there after to set up a permanent studio there in golf. And he did that called CompuSport, did that for a long time. And then we had, the next guy was a guy by the name of Al Vermeil. Uh, we're looking for strength and fitness. And Al was uh, the strength coach for the 49ers at the time. And uh, afterwards he went to, um, he went to work with the Bulls. So he had three Super Bowl rings from the 49ers and six NBA rings from the Bulls. So he was, he was the guy when it came to how to produce power. And uh, he was known as the godfather of power. And he, along with Don Chu, helped invent plyometrics and so forth. And then Al was, he was sought after the whole world. Anyway, he came uh, to help us assess our students and give them program stuff and nobody had ever done it before and so he said well what do you think they ought to do and I said well they ought to just take newspaper and wad it up in their hands to get their forearms real strong that's really what they need to be strong don't want to do any weightlifting because you know they might really make them inflexible you know we don't want to do that <laughs> he said oh well golf is totally different than every other sport in the world if that's the case <laughs> you are the best combination of old and new school and i think that's tremendously valuable because both the old school and the new school have great attributes and great assets that can they can contribute to any golfer's education and any golfer's improvement how have you always managed to stay so forward thinking you know 40 years ago you were coming up with some of these ideas how have you managed to stay fresh and current how do you do that chuck well you know it's interesting to me um that's what what turns me on is by, by studying this and learning more and trying to be better. And, and the students drive you to it, you know, because you'll have student and you'll think you're doing the right thing and they're not getting any better. And you say, gosh, I got, what are they not doing right? We got to figure it out, you know? And, mm. and uh, so let's go look over here in this, in this bundle, or let's look in that bundle and see if we can find the answer to it. And, and that's really uh, what it, what it is. And it's funny, you know, because I don't ever look back, you know, I, was, uh, I think probably one of the bad things about my life is I don't appreciate the past as much as I should, because I'm always looking forward, you know, trying to, yeah. trying to look at some of the other things. And so it, it really intrigues me to learn more and more about it. Chuck, speaking of looking forward, and just in case anybody's watching this, and you might not know who Chuck Cook is, Chuck Cook is a top five coach in the United States, Golf Digest top five coach. Uh, he's higher than that in my ranking system, that's for sure. Uh, he has coached four U.S. Open winners and a PGA Championship winner. Am I correct in that, Chuck? Uh, well, yes, four U.S. Opens and three PGAs. Three PGAs. Who am I missing on the PGAs? I know I got Duff. Duffner and Payne Stewart and Mark Brooks. Ah. Uh, very nice Valhalla I remember that yes yeah. yes um sorry about that Chuck I I, uh, right. I overlooked a few you got uh, you got some extras there. it's always nice to have a few extras in the back pocket there <laughs> <laughs> my back pockets are very empty <laughs> Chuck you know talking about looking forward a hot topic in golf today is distance and certainly what Bryson has done has brought that to light and I think what he's done is looked at the data and he said, how can I have an edge? How can I make gains relative to my competition 
each and every swing. And if you really do study the data and you look at it and you see, well, if I just hit the ball further, that's going to get me closer to the green. And golf is ultimately a closer to the green, closer to the hole game. If you can hit every shot closer to the hole than you did last year, you're going to be significantly better in year two. Uh, what do you think about the distance gains that we're seeing in golf today and the distance players are hitting the golf ball? Do you think there should be changes? Do you think it's going to stay the same? What do you see there? What are your thoughts? Well, you, I, I like it. I mean, I think it's, it's just a sign of athletics uh, currently everywhere. I mean, if you look at Steph Curry and how far out he's shooting threes and uh, all these guys that where they're starting their dunks and so forth. I mean, athletes are better everywhere uh, in every sport. They're bigger, they're stronger, they're faster. Part of it, just there are more people in the world. And so there mm. you take the same percentage of uh, people out of a bigger number of people, you're going to have a higher, uh, higher caliber player. And, but I believe in it. Uh, I work with Dylan Fratelli and, you know, it's funny, but we, that was something that we set out to do to, because he was going to be playing in his first masters this past December. And so uh, his, his trainer, uh, Nick Catterall was very, very instrumental in, in making his workouts more explosive and uh, get building his strength up and all of these different things. And then, we started working on it and it was funny the way it worked because at the university of Texas, Gaka, we've got a lot of good players there. And, and so Dylan could get, he could get to 118, but he'd never use it on the golf course. You know, he'd always yeah. sort of guide it out there, this, that, and the other. And Andrew Landry would outdrive him and Bo Hosler would outdrive him by 40, you know, guys like that. And they would, they'd be out there and, and they'd tease him about it, but he didn't care because that was his nature was to be very mm. conservative. And so we told him, yay, when you get to Augusta, you're going to want to hit it further than you are. And so he agreed to it. So he, got, he went into working on it and uh, we started doing some stuff, uh, some foot pressure stuff where we found out that he was getting uh, left too late. And so consequently he never, he, he, he wouldn't push up off the ground. So he would be too far behind it. And then he'd just sort of glide forward, keeping his left knee flexed and go down the line and never create that vertical. He had a very strong rotary uh, torque uh, number and a strong lateral number, but his, his vertical number was real, real low. So anyway, we widened his feet out a little bit, got him going to the left sooner. And then he started posting up sooner which increased his vertical which helped him increase his speed and a lot of it was just done through intention uh you yeah. know these guys had teased him so much and we said hey dylan you just need to swing harder and so combining a little technical with a little bit of intention he started swinging harder and he led the tour in driving distance the week before the masters at houston well, that's uh, amazing yeah, I mean, he got up to where he could get to 128. Uh, wow. So he picked up 10 miles an hour, really, in a short period of time. And uh, ended up finishing fifth in the Masters. And yeah. so it was a successful experiment. So I, I, I think that's a big part of golf is uh, what you're doing to produce distance. And and uh, he, uh, I think that's, you know, distance, direction, you know, control of distance uh, as well as producing distances are big 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 factors in golf
Chuck, have you found, because I've I, certainly it's something I've worked on myself, uh, and I normally swing the driver at around 103 to 105 on the golf course. And just in trying to get faster, and I like the word you used, you said intentional. I think that's very, very important is to get out there and intentionally practice and intentionally try to swing faster. Uh, I've seen that I can get it to over 116. Like that's my max at the moment. Uh, I think I need to get stronger in order to up that number. But in you working with your golfers, have you found that uh, the thing that's really struck me is how straight I have stayed, how straight some golfers who I've worked with. I always thought my whole career, if I start swinging that hard, I'm going to be all over the place. And just with a little bit of practice, it's incredible how straight I'm able to stay. Have you noticed something along those lines? Yeah, I see the same thing. You know, Dylan, Dylan was that way. He was, he was, he didn't lose much in accuracy. You know, he'd lose some just because yeah. of the dispersion ratio, but uh, he, he didn't lose much in it. And, you know, the, the equipment is primarily responsible for that. You know, the heads are so mm. big and they're so forgiving and the shafts are so clubs are so much lighter and, things like that, that you can, uh, you're not going to hit it as crooked as you used to with Woodwoods or, uh, you know, back in that day, you just couldn't swing hard. If you swung hard, you duck yeah, hook it yeah. or that's true. keep it in the air, you know? And so that's really, really helped. And I think Bryson just brought it to everybody's one. Hey, we can do this, you know, mm. and this will make me better. Yeah. And yeah. I think when he won the U S open, that sort of opened a bunch of eyes because, uh, you know, he was only sixth in driving distance there, but he, you know, but he won big time. He was the only guy. Yeah. yeah I thought he played beautifully. He, he certainly hit it far, but he hit some artistic, beautiful, really feel style golf shots. He played beautifully there. Um, I think a little bit, my personal opinion going into Augusta, I don't think he had enough respect for the golf course. And I think, you know what I mean? I, I know he totally respects the masters and the golf course, but he was a little too aggressive. And I think Augusta almost tempts players to be overly aggressive and you've got to know when to go and when to hold it a little bit out of Augusta. And it seems like just his preparation and his game plan, my two cents, of course, as he just didn't seem to quite have that edge where he was going to be able to, uh, know when to go and when to back off. Well, I, and, I, and I think, too, there was a lot of pressure on him. You know, he was predicted to win the thing by 12 shots, to break Tiger's record by how many shots he won by and so on and so forth. And uh, that's hard to live up to for anybody, I think. But, no, I would agree with you 100%. Sure, sure. Chuck, I, I know we, you and I have had the good fortune. Well, I've really had the good fortune of traveling around Europe a little bit with you. We've done some coach camps and some seminars over there. And uh, I've got to hear, I've been the benefactor of a couple of your uh, over dinner, over a beer or something, some of your amazing golf stories. And that's, that's really the big thing I wanted to get to today. I know you've got uh, two hours, multiple hours of, of just great old time golf stories. Give us a couple, would you? I know you've got some gems in there. What you got? Well, let's see. Let me think of the ones I can tell you about. <laughs> we had, when I worked with Payne Stewart, we went over uh, to uh, prepare a couple of weeks early for the British Open. 
And so the first week he went and played in Monaco and I went over there with him. And so he and by association, me were invited to go to a reception being held by Princess Grace over there. And uh, so it was, it was a uh, white tie. Okay. Yeah. And so we went to tuxedo shop there and tried to, re- I, there wasn't pants that would fit me. It's on fit pain. So, so I said, well, I'm going to do a Texas tuxedo. So I wore blue jeans uh, with the tuxedo coat. <laughs> and so we, uh, when we went into the line, she looked me up and down, shake her hands. And she says, Payne, your coach is quite the cat's meow. <laughs> so, so anyway, to continue on in that trip, we then went up to, to uh, Scotland to play uh, the week before the tournament. And um, the tournament was in Burkdale, but we went to Scotland. So we played all over uh, Scotland. Uh, we had Dick Coop, the sports psychologist I told you about earlier, and yeah. Payne's caddy, Mike Hicks, and myself and Payne. And we all developed nicknames. So Payne was the Pied Piper because once we got to Scotland, there was this group of American college students and they were, they followed Payne everywhere. In fact, a bunch of them came down to the tournament afterwards and followed him. So we called him the Pied Piper. Were they, were they girls or, or boys? Girls. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I figured as much. <laughs> I like how you left that out. And so, uh, and then, uh, Dick Coop was very conservative when it came to driving on the left side of the road. We had a big van we were driving around. And, and so he'd go way under the speed limit. We called him Grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Mike Hicks, when we would go anywhere, he would disappear for a while. Uh, you know, I think to, to enjoy uh, uh, a little mental stimulation, you know, off the off the bill <laughs> yes yes and so we 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 call him uh, uh oh what we call him oh anyway he'd disappear and they need to show up yeah and then one night Payne and i went out this was in troon and we went out to go do karaoke and so <laughs> dumb americans that we were we were staying at the at this hotel and you know how they have the big flourishing the big key and then the big fob on the end of it. Yes. Heavy. Yeah. Heavy, big old thing. And they don't intend for you to carry it around. You leave it at the hotel and you pick yeah. it back up when you come in, but dumb American, we kept our keys. So we had our keys in our pocket. So the hotel thought that we were in our rooms because the keys were uh, gone out of our deal. So we come in at two o'clock in the morning and uh, the uh, hotel is locked up. We can't get in. We rang the buzzer. Nobody comes, this, that, and the other. And so we were staying on the third floor and Hixie, <laughs> Hixie tries to call in one of the windows and gets stuck. And so I had to find some way to get in. So I shinted up the drain pipe, walked across this slate roof in my leather sole shoes, and then <laughs> grabbed hold of the gutter and swung into our room because the window was open at the top and Coop was in there sleeping and scared him to death. And so we came down, <laughs> That's we came awesome. down with him. But anyway, that was Payne Stewart. We had a good time wherever we went with Payne. He, was, he wanted everybody around him to always enjoy themselves. And so we did that. 
So that's one of the fun stories that we had. Uh, that is a jab. So what was your nickname, Chuck? You must have had a nickname. I would think so. I would have called you <laughs> Spider-Man after that story. <laughs> Spider-Man. I like that a lot. Chuck, you know, you're, you're always looking to learn. You're always looking to grow forward thinking as we've discussed. What if there was one person and it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody in the golf sphere. If there was one coach, one person that you would like to learn from, who would it be? Uh, actually, when you posted that question, I thought hard about it. I, really, I'd like to get inside Tiger Woods' mind. Oh, that's um, interesting. He's the only person that's had everything. Uh, mm. he, he's the only guy that had no weaknesses at all in his game, and he wouldn't accept them. Uh, and I've had a chance to spend some time around him and have learned tremendous amount every time I've been around him. Uh, one time, this was in 1999, I went with Payne over to play golf in Ireland with uh, the Isleworth crew. Mm. And Tiger was there and Duval, Jansen, Appleby, uh, Mark O'Meara, you know, all those guys were over there. And so at the time, Tiger was using that 43 and a half inch steel shafted driver. And he was driving it over 300 yards dead straight. I mean, he was the straightest driver almost on tour. I think he was 12th in accuracy at three at at the over 300 yards. Yeah. And, but he couldn't control his distance with his irons. He was sort of a, uh, laid back, lay the face back through impacts so of the loft was always changing. So he hit it straight, but he never really hit it, hit it the right distance. And so we go out, we get there on Sunday and, uh, the, this was the week before the British open. Uh, we get there on Sunday, uh, in Ireland, the week before British Open week. And so we decided, okay, let's play a scramble. That way everybody will stay awake. Uh, yeah. And we don't have to won't fall asleep. So we go out and play a scramble. And my, my scramble team is uh, Tiger and Payne and the two richest men in Ireland, J.P. McManus and Dermot Desmond. Okay. So yeah. that's my team. And the other team is Jansen Appleby. Uh, Todd Woodbridge is the Wimbledon doubles champion. Yeah. yeah, yeah. O'Mara and somebody. So anyway, so we go play and we used all of Tiger's drives uh, and they were long. So Payne and I could hit that little knockdown wedge, you know, so, you know, we're birdieing every hole, this, that, ever, but Tiger can't hit that wedge close at all. I mean, he's, yeah. he's got this thing going all over the place. And so He's in there all over me. He's going, man, your divots are too deep. And I said, yeah, but you're putting my ball. We're well, not putting your ball. You know? <laughs> and uh, so he was, uh, so after we got finished, Tiger said, I got to learn that shot. He said, I got to have that shot. Yeah. And I said, well, I'll show you what I do. But I said, you ought to go see Mark O'Meara. He's the best distance wedge player in the world at the time. And good, they were good yeah. buddies, obviously. And so that was in July of 1999. And the next time I saw Tiger was at the Ryder Cup at Brookline. And uh, the week before he, is when he had brought out his stinger. And okay. so he, he, this is where he brought out his stinger. So he brought it out. And I mean, it was stinger everything. So stinger driver, stinger three wood, you know, definitely flighting wedges, flighting everything down. 
And uh, so I walked up to him in the range. I said, Hey, Tiger, I got a bone to pick with you. And he said, what's that? And I said, uh, I said, you were all over me about my divots over there in Ireland, but you took half of Ohio with you last week when you won at Firestone. <laughs> 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 he said, well, the ground was a lot softer. I go, yeah, 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 yeah. So he was so proud of himself. He says, look, you guys, I'm going to show you my punchy. He said, I got, I got it. And so he showed me the shot and his arms went down the line, you know, hit this nice flatted shot like this. He said, what do you think? And I said, well, that's the way an amateur would knock it down. Their hands would go down the line like that. I said, a pro would drag it up the plane over here to the left, stay more connected. <laughs> so he looked at me like I was crazy. And next so what did he I, say? Next time I was saw him, his arms were connected. He just dragged it up the plane to the left. I mean, that's what he was. He, he was different than anybody else in that he wouldn't accept weakness. And, mm. you know, he just, you know, from July – until September, he turned his weakness into his strength. And, yeah. you know, every time I've been around him, I've learned stuff. I've asked him questions, you know, and uh, about all sorts of different things. And he's, I've learned something every time. So he's the guy I'd like to hang with to learn more about. That's neat. That's a cool answer. I, I know I once did a, uh, a clinic with D.A. Wybring. And D.A. Wybring told a story about Tiger. He said uh, he was playing with Tiger and it was the final round and they weren't really in contention. This was early, early on in Tiger's career. And they were playing in Dallas and he hits it over the green on 17, that par three that they used to play in Dallas. And D.A. had this little short game shot and it was just a perfect time for D.A. to play this shot because he didn't get to use this shot very often, but it was kind of a bit of a specialty shot. And he, he it's this little mini flopper shot and it's got some spin on it and checks up about two feet from the hole. And he's putting his, his club back, his wedge back in the bag and he looks over and here comes Tiger beelining straight at him with his eyes like wide open and he comes, he walks straight up to him and he says, he puts his hand on DA's shoulder and he says, I don't know what shot you just hit there, but when we're done today, you're going to teach junior that shot, <laughs> you know? And, and, and that kind of speaks to he's, he's selectively open to hearing good information. You know, he, he doesn't certainly doesn't listen to everybody, uh, but he knows that he wants to get better. And if he sees someone play a shot that he really likes, he's going to find a, find out about it and go and learn it, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, he's, he's different than the rest of them, of, of all the players I've seen, you know, and, and I think, you know, uh, being Buddhist helped his, helps his focus, his meditate, you know, he used to meditate a lot. And mm. I think he, he just learned to get inside a lot deeper than anybody else does. Mm. Mm. Check for the getting back to just the everyday golfer, people who might be listening in uh, what in 30 seconds, if you could say, I'm going to throw this 30 second blanket over the whole golf population. And if everybody can follow this information, you're going to get better. What would you say in 30 seconds for us? Chuck? Well, uh, the everyday golfer just doesn't hit very many greens. So the first tip I'd say is practice your chipping uh, more than anything else to start with. That's the quickest way for them to lower their scores. The second thing is, is that I think they should all go through the process of playing with a strong grip, uh, learning to, to, uh, to hold the club with a, for a right-handed golfer, both hands turn to the right to where the ball's going to hook and then fighting the hook. And I think this produces the, the, a path that's more from the inside and then also lag. And so I think both of those are important to developing as a good player. 
That was 38. That's great advice because you and I have had many discussions and I actually quote you just about weekly on my lesson tee. And I distinctly remember you saying to me, Andrew, when a golfer starts, they're typically a slicer. Your goal is to take that slicer and teach them how to hook. And when they learn how to hit strong overdraws and big hooks, then they come back and you teach them how to hit it straight. And now they start to become a real player. And that's really the sequence there. And I always remember you saying that. Well, you, you've, uh, you've surpassed me because I watched you give Paul Wood a lesson and you turned his slice into a hot draw. And I see now, I see now Dr. Paul is uh, getting close to 120 miles an hour. I mean, he's uh, giving you a lot of credit for his success. Yeah. Yeah, he's, uh, he's really picked it up. And I, I, all I was doing was following your guidance, Chuck. I was just turning a slicer into a hooker. Eh? Um, I really do think that's good advice. So many people who had weak golf shots out there, if they could simply go, okay, I'm all in on learning how to hook. Uh, I need to strengthen that grip, strengthen that club face, deal off the club. And that's going to get me eventually, if I just persist with this long enough, I'm going to get a, a good, strong draw going, and then I can start working to straighten it out, to neutralize, as we've discussed in the past. Absolutely. You know, you've heard of John Jacobs, a famous British teacher, I'm yes. sure. Yes. Uh, I did a golf school with uh, Mr. Jacobs. It was my first golf digest school that I did. So it was in late 70s, 79 or something. And the way he would start his school is he would have a student come up on the practice tee and he would sit with his back facing him and, or no, excuse me. He would sit in front of the guy where all he could see was the flight of the ball. Okay. And so but he couldn't see the guy swing. Yeah. And he would correct the guy within five swings and wow. so without ever seeing it. So, uh, you know, there is obviously certain, so always the slicers, he strong grip, drop your right shoulder, you know, uh, close your feet up a little bit, da, 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 you know, and the, and the, the hookers, he'd have them weaken their grip, get the ball forwards, swing to the left, you know, all that sort of thing. But he would correct, he would correct ball flight in five balls with a hundred percent of the time. Wow. That's neat. That's neat. That's skill and experience as a coach right yeah, there. Yeah. The ability to be able to do that. That's for sure. Uh, Chuck, if, if you could, you and I, we love, we love the game. I know you love the game. We love the game, uh, which means that we love golf courses and we love great golf courses and we love playing the game. We've played, had the good fortune to play together uh, on a couple of occasions. If you could join one golf club, and I'm not necessarily asking for what course do you think is the greatest course in the world, but if you could join one golf club on the planet, which one would you join and why? Well, I love Irish golf and I love Scottish golf and I love English links golf. Uh, but if I had to pick one, it would probably be Cypress Point out in Cal Carmel, California. And the reason is, is because of the terrain is so different. Uh, the first seven holes you're playing through uh, the woods, you know, just like you're playing upstate Michigan. And then the next seven holes you're playing through the dunes like you're playing in, in Scotland. And then when you get to 15, you start go working out, uh, or excuse me, 14, you're driving out toward the ocean. And then 15, 16, 17, you're playing over the cliffs, uh, over the ocean. Yeah. Uh, and then you come back home on 18. But the, 
you never have the same shot twice on that golf course. I mean, it's incredible, really. And I've played a lot of times, and it may be a little dated now because of the equipment. You, you know, you hit it so much farther that it's not as hard as it once was. But it's always immaculate condition. The greens are super fast and wonderful, and uh, everything about the everything about the uh, golf course is is enjoyable for me. I've got. Uh... I would, I've never had the good fortune to play Cyprus, but I do have a good story. A friend of mine who's, a, who's, who's now a retired golf professional, uh, when he was a lot younger, he caddied for a friend of his on the PGA Tour playing in the Bing Crosby. Okay, and they played, they played Cyprus in those days, Cyprus and Pebble, and I think one other golf course. And uh, they're paired with Ben Hogan this day. They're playing Cyprus with Ben Hogan. And the pro that my friend was catting for was quite friendly with Ben Hogan. And the pro was having an amazing day. He was striping the golf ball. He was a couple under par. And he was, he was making Ben Hogan look bad. But the thing that was really getting to him was Ben Hogan hadn't said a word. He hadn't said good shot, amazing shot, nice putt. He hadn't said a word all day long. So they come to 16, the hole over the ocean, and it's straight into the wind. And for some reason, Hogan had the honor on 16. And Hogan takes a forearm and hits it out left, lays it up, doesn't go for the green. And the pro that my friend's catting for whips out driver, and he says he laces this ball dead straight into the heart of the green 20 feet from the hole. And so they're walking, they're taking the long walk around to get to the green. And the pro decides, listen, you know, I'm going to say something to Hogan now, you know, because he hasn't even said, he didn't get, even give me a good shot there. He said, so as they're walking around, <laughs> this, my, my friend tells me, he says, Ben, what did you think of that shot? And Hogan, without looking at him, most probably had a cigarette in his mouth, said, worst shot you've hit all day. <laughs> <laughs> He said, worst shot you've hit all day. <laughs> and Hogan's going, you know, that was a bad decision. You pulled it off, but it was a bad play, a bad decision. And he never said anything else. I think the guy ended up shooting like 68 on a tough day at Cyprus. Wow. And, uh, and Hogan said, worst shot you've hit all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are a lot of stories about Hogan like that, for sure. So I'm sure that's yeah. true. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Chuck, if... Okay, so Cyprus, it would be um, something that I distinctly remember, and we've most probably had this discussion in the past. Uh, I'm sure you recall giving a horrible golf lesson. If you've given as many as you've given, I know you've given a couple of bad ones. Can you tell us about it and what you learned from that experience? Oh, yeah. Well, this, you'll like this story. Uh, we were uh, in the Bahamas doing a clinic, uh, a, a seminar, a PGA seminar mm. on instruction. And I'm uh, with Ed Oldfield. I don't know if you've ever heard of Ed Oldfield, but he I was, have, yes. Yeah. Ed was a phenomenal teacher from Chicago that worked with Jan Stevenson and uh, Beth Daniels and, uh, you know, all of the, a uh, lot of the good girl golfers. He was a phenomenal teacher. So here we are, Two, two, quote, experts. He was a true expert, and I was a pretend expert. So anyway, we're giving a, a sample lesson. We're giving a demo lesson. 
And so the student I've got is shanking it. Okay. Yeah. He's hitting it right in the hosel. This thing is, is starting off dead left and sucking the gloves off of everybody watching us. I mean, this thing is bad, bad shank. And so, you know, we had talked about the ball flight laws back then. Well, how path determines starting direction and club face determines yeah. direction, right? Yes. So I'm going in there and I'm telling this guy, well, you can see how far left that started right there. Let's see if we can get our path a little bit more to the right. <laughs> All right. So here's this world expert telling this guy who's so far inside out as it is and hitting it right in the neck of the club to do it more. I'm trying to get it and he keeps oh. shanking it and he keeps shanking it. And so Ed jumps in, he says, let, let me, let me put my two cents worth in over here. And of course he had the guy fixed, you know, in a moment. He, th he, said, he throws you a life raft. Huh? He throws yeah, you he, a life raft. He would, I mean, I would never fix the guy. And so he yeah. was my life raft. And so I, I, um, uh, he said, yeah, just hit some cut shots. Feel like you're going to hit it off the toe because you're cutting across the ball. And the guy started hitting it dead straight, of course. And, and so uh, I learned then that I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. That's for sure. <laughs> but it was embarrassing. <laughs> and, no doubt and you know, it. It, it is, we have made some good headway, haven't we, in the coaching community? <laughs> I, we're not all the way there, but but we're getting there. We're certainly trying to get there. And I think the quality of information, certainly from even when I started teaching, uh, the quality of information has improved. Uh, the level of knowledge has been elevated. And I think the internet and, and just social media and the internet has played a big role in getting good information out there. Yeah, I think so too. Good and bad, but mostly yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. If if you stick with it long enough, you'll you'll be able to determine what's good and what's bad, and you'll you'll find a good road. Uh, Chuck, I, I wanted to. We're going to finish with our fast finish questions here. I'm going to let you let you off here, but uh, I do want to hear some of these responses. I've got a decent idea as to which way you will go on each of these. But I don't want you to put too much thought into them. And I'm just going to fire these at you. Okay. So here we go. Pebble Beach or St. Andrews? Pebble Beach. Caddyshack or Tin Cup? Tin Cup. I'm 0 for 2 so far. I would have picked <laughs> you going the other way. Walk or ride? Walk. Jack or Tiger? Tiger. Ooh. Open Championship or the U.S. Open? U.S. Open. Wait, why wouldn't I say U.S. Open, right? No, I, I no, I picked that. I was like, okay. I know, I'm sure Chuck will pick the U.S. Open. No, no I definitely had you picking that. Oh, uh, that's would you, a lie. <laughs> would you? Yeah. Would you rather be the best iron player or the best driver? Best driver. Lynx golf or Parkland golf? Lynx golf. Annika or Mickey Wright? Mickey Wright. The Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Beatles. A major championship or winning the money list? Major championship. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Okay, and now for the all-important bonus question. Berkshire Hathaway or Bitcoin? Oh, Bitcoin, of course. <laughs> no, that's not right. You're not picking that. I know you're not picking that. 
Very good. Very good. Um, Chuck, this has been lovely. Uh, I sincerely appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your insights and some of your experience and just those great stories. Uh, it's good to hear from you, my friend. I sincerely uh, value you as not only a friend, but as a coach. And I know in a lot of the reading that I did today, uh, you were described as the coach's coach. And speaking as a golf coach, I cannot second that loudly enough. You are the, the coach's coach. Uh, you're the player's coach as well. Don't get me wrong on that, uh, in that regard. But I've learned so much from you. And hopefully people are going to learn about you and learn from you with this, this information here. So thanks for coming on, Chuck. It's been great fun. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on, Andrew. Thanks so much. And Chuck, one one last question before we go, because we always <laughs> got to get one more in here. Give us a name that's not Fratelli that you think is going to have a great 2021, a young up-and-coming golfer. Who you got? Uh, Xander Shoffley, I think. Okay, that's a good pick. That's a good pick. I'm not sure that's going out on a limb that far. No, uh, I'm <laughs> How can you? You could go with Matthew Wolf or Morikawa. Yeah, I mean, there aren't any bad young golfers, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. There's a great crop of young golfers, but I do think Xander is due to make some even bigger strides. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't remember that he won even last year, and I think, mm. I think he's way too good to not, not win. Yeah, he was, he was up there often. He was up there often. Chuck, thanks for your time. Thanks for your expertise and your friendship. Take care, my friend. Cheers, mate. Thanks, eh? Bye. Bye.